Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Joseph Harrington. He's Professor of Anthropology at Yale University. He studies language change as a source of insight into the ways languages constitute intimate parts of our everyday lives and at the same time are foundational for large-scale institutions, social groups, and social dynamics. He has worked mostly in Indonesia, studying Javanese, Indonesian, and the range of Malay dialects. He has also worked on questions of language ideology and practice, like uh, how conceptions of language can shape and reflect social interests, naturalize image, images of social groups, and shape everyday ways of talking. So, Dr. Harrington, welcome to the show. It's a big pleasure to everyone. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. So, uh, let's start perhaps with a more general question to sort of introduce the audience to the kind of work you do in anthropology and linguistics more specifically, and then uh, perhaps we will walk through some of the major topics you explore in your work. So, uh, what are some of the aspects of linguistics, how people use language and uh, ways language impact their everyday lives that you are most interested in? Well, when I started, what interests me most was the opaque truth that language and thought are bound to each other and the question as to whether differences in language are related to differences in patterns of thought and speech and expression. Uh, that was a long time ago. That was when I was doing pure linguistics in graduate school and everybody was studying under the Chomskyan paradigm. Uh, but it took me a little while to realize that the transformational paradigm was too formalistic to really get at issues of meaning. They, they didn't want to deal with issues of meaning. And so I became a kind of refugee into anthropology. So I think of myself as a linguist who left the fold and am now working in deep cover as an anthropologist. Uh, but that is the underlying question that has always interested me the most. I suppose. Uh, it changed when I actually began to study a language that I had not previously known, which is Indonesian and Javanese, when that question about thought and expression became much more concrete, much more everyday, uh, much more experiential. Uh, watching myself learn to adapt, not just to acquiring a different language, but a different way of dealing with people, <laughs> such that uh, the ways I, interpersonal relations with other people became hard to disentangle from ways of thinking about other people and about the world, in other words, culture. Uh, so is this, is this speaking to your question? Mm -hmm. uh, this went together with uh, participation with colleagues in work which was increasingly focused on the ways that languages become instruments for naturalizing forms of social difference among humans, or language ideologies as they were called. And, and 
that broad question fit quite well with the issues I was dealing with in Indonesia. And, and so the things that you just mentioned as being part of my research came out of that. Uh, I should say that I started with the big, big questions, the big theory questions, but I found myself increasingly concerned with the little questions, the way it plays out in everyday lives. I find it found it harder and harder to keep the big questions independent of what I saw going on in everyday life, which made me, I became an empiricist. <laughs> But uh, I mean, to pick on one of the concepts you mentioned there, uh, you mentioned at a certain point language ideology. So yeah. could you get more into that? What does that concept mean exactly? And how are language ideologies developed, I guess? Yeah. Okay, the phrase language ideology has come into use. I mean, one, one can pronounce it ideology or ideology, and some people will say the difference goes together with the difference in meaning, but we'll let that go. Uh, the phrase is supposed to draw attention to the ways that conceptions of language, both globally and as individual units, but also particular properties of language become uh, a lens or an instrument or a means for naturalizing ideas about groups of people or individual speakers. So that uh, what appears to be, shall we say, what everybody, everybody who speaks a language knows the language and they know things about the language. But the things that they know about the language arise in particular contexts, they serve particular social interests, and they focus on particular groups or individuals. Mm -hmm. And it is the situatedness of those ideas that the phrase language ideology helps to foreground. That is the, you know, the idea, for instance, of what counts as good language versus bad language, good English versus bad, bad English, what counts as foreign English versus native English, uh, what counts as good Portuguese or bad Portuguese, what, what, what makes you sound like you're, you're from Porto or sounds like you're from the mountains, right? Mm -hmm. uh, those connections seem quite self-evident to speakers of the language. Uh, but they, in fact, arise from a series of connections between language form and social categories that are rooted in other things. <laughs> They're rooted in social interests, social backgrounds, social biographies. So language ideologies is the phrase that people like me have used to begin to, to try and unpack those relationships. Uh, and I mean, those factors that uh, language ideologies are based upon, as you mentioned there, uh, do they operate for people who are part of a particular language community, like, for example, someone who speaks American English or Portuguese? Or do people also apply language ideologies when thinking about uh, other languages, that languages that are not part of their cultural milieu, let's say. Sure. Uh, yes, they, they do. Uh, I mean, I would just point out, for instance, you refer to American English uh, and what you mean by that and what I know you mean by that and by almost everybody knows you mean by that 
is the variety of speech which is now coming out of my mouth. Yeah, this is. Yes. And if I want to be a little technical, I will call it standard American English. Mm -hmm. But that's not really entirely accurate because there are speakers of standard American English who have a slightly different accent. Right. And then we say, well, that's standard English with a southern accent. Or, uh, <laughs> and there are speakers who are Americans and have been speaking English from the time that they were children, uh, which we say is really African-American English. Well, does that not mean it's American English? Well, yes, it is. But when we say American English, that is set to the side. That is residualized. And we can say, well, that's just how we speak, right? That's just a, a, for convenience sake. But in fact, that has built into it uh, a category of center and margin, right? Or center and periphery, which maps clearly onto issues of race. So I'm just saying that's an example of a language ideology, which is, it's it's not that I, it's not bad, it's not pernicious, it's just, it, it's just the way we do things, and everybody does, so that that's an example of language ideologies as they shape ways of speaking about and thinking about language speakers of a group, yeah? But the same thing is definitely in place when we think about other languages uh, and and their speakers. Uh, it can be as trivial as, for instance, the difference, if I may stay with the example, between American English and Canadian English. I, I, I don't know if you're aware that there are differences between them, but Americans will tell you that they that there are. You know, Canadians, they don't say out, they say out. They, say, they don't say mouse, they say moose, which is a very trivial difference. But no. Americans, because they associate with a national identity, they, they pick it out and they say, oh, you're Canadian. Do you say, you know, out of the house with the moose? That, right. As opposed to, to use an example more along what I suspect uh, is a line of your question, uh, entire nations and their languages can be viewed as essentially alien or other. The more you know about the people, the more nuanced your ideas about their language is likely to be. Yeah, so mm -hmm. there are stereotypes, if you will, right? Uh, French is, in America, French is a beautiful language. German is not so pretty. <laughs> Dutch sounds like geese uh, and, and, and so on, yeah. And these are very trivial and and joking, but they do serve to pigeonhole, right? To place certain languages in certain places. But when you think then about languages belonging to what are regarded as significantly different societies or nations or races, you then very easily segue into ideas of other people's languages as being not just different, but deficient. Mm -hmm. And at that point, certain ideas about particular things in a language become a means for projecting, naturalizing differences, deficiency. Uh, oh, that language doesn't have any tense. <laughs> they can't tell time. That's yeah. which, I, I mean, if you're a linguist, this is hard, hard to fathom, but these are the sorts of things people believe or, or naturally mm -hmm. will say, oh, their languages are primitive. They don't have words for fill in the blank or 
They're so at one with their environment. You know, the, the, the old story is, oh, the Eskimos, they have 64 words for snow. Why? Because they are snow people. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you have this image of them as, and it's wrong. That is wrong in general, but it's also wrong empirically. Mm -hmm. Eskimos don't have six, I mean, they don't have 64 words for snow, but that doesn't matter. What matters is, is the image. Mm -hmm. uh, so that languages become powerful means for displacing prejudices or views of people. Uh, what, can I give you one more example? Uh, yes, yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Americans, and I'm doing this for the North American audience, I guess. Americans love an, an English accent. Yeah, they they hear somebody with an English accent and and they assume they're dealing with somebody who's clever and educated and and. But what they mean by English accent is usually some version of received pronunciation, right? The so-called standard, which is really upper class posh English. So what they're doing is by identifying English in England with one very small group they center that group as their image of the entire nation. <laughs> right. Right. They, they don't think about Cockney English or, or mm -hmm. English as spoken in Glasgow, which they couldn't even understand. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that once it, it's another example of the ways that a very partial situated idea of language becomes a mean for classifying or pigeonholing an entire social social group. Uh, and is this something that uh, I mean, of course, people in general do it, but uh, are scientists and more specifically linguists, linguists also at fault here? I mean, when it comes to the history of linguistics, how it developed as a discipline and particularly when people started, started getting in touch more and studying more uh, what we could call, let's say, alien languages, languages that come from pl uh, places where traditional societies live, for example, and that have been uh, through uh, for a long time uh, until recently isolated from some of the more uh, mainstream languages, let's say, if we could call them that. Uh, is it uh, that linguists also tended to think or still tend to think about those languages with those particular uh, inaccurate negative stereotypes in mind when studying hmm. them, even scientifically? Yeah. Uh, at different points in the development of the field, one would have to give very, very different answers. Hmm. If the linguistics, you could say, has its roots in uh, philology, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, there was a time when the study of cultures and literatures and languages were never fully dissociated from each other, mm -hmm. which meant that to study a language was already to study a culture. And right. so suppose we say that we're talking about well into European expansion into the mm -hmm. rest of the world. And if I'm right, don't let me go on too long. If, if I if I if I do. Uh, okay. 
So that presented Europeans with a tremendous, not just a, a challenge of exploration and then exploitation, but an intellectual challenge because before that expansion began, the knowledge of linguistic diversity was really limited. Mm -hmm. And it was easy for you to believe that there were 72 languages in the world, which all came into being with the fall of the Tower of Babel. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was the biblical story. Uh, you know, the idea was Hebrew was the oldest language. That was the language of Eden. And but as reports came back and eventually documentation began to come back to Europe from all over the world of many more languages, or rather writings that purported to be about many more languages, and those languages clearly looked nothing like any of the 72 languages that existed. This became a, an intellectual challenge because the biblical story of the origins of humanity was now, well, those who had not doubted it previously <laughs> had to begin to come up with a new story a new story of origins, which was also yeah. a story of how are all those people out there who are speaking these things where these are languages, we cannot deny their languages. Therefore, in some way, we cannot deny they are human. <laughs> Yet they are so very different from us. Uh, and we intend to uh, both save them and enslave them. Or some, pro we, they will be objects of our projects, right? Uh -huh. we, we, were, we have things we intend to do it where they are. Right. So that the condition of linguistic diversity became the big riddle of, of what became linguistics. Mm -hmm. But it was very much bound up with the assumption that there are primitive languages and developed languages. And this is uh, mid 18th century. Uh, Helder's essay on the origin of language is one of the, the touchstones of this, as well as being by no coincidence a touchstone for the beginnings of romantic nationalism as mm -hmm. an ideology in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. Because it was, a, it was not just an explanation of linguistic diversity in the world, it was a celebration of the languages of communities, especially German. <laughs> so at that point, the study of linguistics could not be dissociated from the study of culture. It was holistic. It was the whole thing. Uh, it's not until, could I say, the 1920s, 1930s, after Ferdinand de Saussure, well, not just be after him and because of him, but the idea that languages were to be studied on the basis of their own internal properties as systems, self-enclosed, mm -hmm defined systems with their own distinct properties. And the study of those properties could only be carried out by suspending questions of relative worth. Right? It was, mm -hmm. it was not that the idea was not that all languages are equivalent or equal. The idea was that there is no criteria for ranking them, mm -hmm. which is a different, right? I mean, some people say, oh, linguistic relativism, they're all the same. But no, that's not right. It is that we suspend the question of relative worth in order to do our work. And at that point, linguistics makes the claim, makes the effort to dissociate its objective study from all this other stuff. <laughs> right. So Sewer, 
in in Europe and Bloomfield in the United States were very much responsible for that break. And that carries up from then. You see, at that point, linguistics made another claim to be a science. It achieved the status of of an, of an empirical science. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, uh, up to that point, uh, was linguistics in any way tied to the history of colonialism? Oh, yes. And it's, it was afterwards as well, very much. Mm. Uh, it was tied to colonialism, both instrumentally and ideologically, because the simple, hard, universal fact of colonialism was that whatever project one had as a colonialist, if one did not simply kill the colonial subjects, then you had to deal with them. <laughs> you had to come up with some way of communicating with them. Right. And, and it wasn't because you wanted to, it was because you had to. Mm -hmm. And you had, therefore, to negotiate that paradox that I mentioned before, they are like us, they use language, but they're different from us. They're human, but they are not human as, as human as we are, which is why we are entitled, privileged, licensed to do what we want to do. So linguists, people who work on languages were needed in the first place to devise the means for communication. Yeah, so mm -hmm. you could ask, so so the priests could convert people to Christianity. So that the Catholic friars who first went to the New World could induce people to become members of the Catholic faith. Uh, well, they are some of the first linguists. This is, you know, 16th century, large grammars are being written of the languages of Mexican, uh, of Mexican regions. And they're being written by priests solely for the purposes of converting them. The idea being, we can only convert them if they can understand what we say. They can only understand what we say if we use their language. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and in some cases, these in these cases, the friar linguists, in fact, worked to defend the colonial subjects from other colonialists. Uh, they tried to say these are humans with souls. They are God's creatures as much as we are. Therefore, they should not be subjected to these awful depredations which are being carried out. They tried. It didn't work. Uh, but now if you hop ahead, let's say late colonialism, let's say late 19th, early 20th century when industrialization has taken hold in Europe, and raw materials are needed from elsewhere in the world so that distant regions are being increasingly integrated. I mean, if you do a Wallerstein sort of world system thing, you will get this argument. Uh, and at this point, they need factories, plantations, they need bureaucracies, and they need people to work in those bureaucracies. And that means they need natives. I use the word ironically. They need natives who can be bureaucrats for them, and that means they need natives who know their language, not just know their languages, their European languages, but they must be literate. So now you're do so now you are creating a cadre, yeah, of natives 
Well, it's it's what Mill said about India, uh, you know, a class of Indians who are British in everything except the color of their skins, in their language and in their tastes. So this is a very it's a both exploitation and education. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was this was what the British did. This is what the French did. Uh, the, the Germans did not. Uh, the, the Dutch did not, the Belgians did not, right? They, they were very, they did not want the natives to have their language because they thought once they have our language, the last barrier between us will be eradicated and they will judge themselves to be our equals. Whereas the British and the English said, well, should it happen that they become so civilized that they can speak our language as well as we can, which is to say literate in our language as we are, well, then they might as well be one of us. Of course, practically, they knew that was not going to happen very much. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I may be, I hope I'm not wandering, but uh, the, the ways that linguists participated in colonial projects was very much bound up with what they were doing. Uh, if I may add one more, if we move past World War II, mm -hmm. right, into the so-called theater of the Cold War, yeah. uh, linguists working, mostly Protestants, uh, worked very closely with governments of countries where marginalized groups still existed. And in many cases, they took it to be their job, not just to convert them to Christianity, Protestant Christianity, but to induce them to leave their old languages behind and to learn the languages of the nation. This is a, like in Central America, for instance, the, so, the Summer Institute of Linguistics had this as its overt goal. They were going to study the local Mayan languages so as to help the speakers of those languages learn Spanish and eventually leave the Mayan languages behind because in that way they become more modern, more civilized. So that is a, mm -hmm. that's a, that's a colonial project. <laughs> being carried out not under the auspices of colonial powers in the north, but under the auspices of the governments that have taken over former colonial territories. Uh, so linguists hands have, I'm saying linguists' hands have never been clean. I guess that's what I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm Right. But, but I mean, when they were exposed to all this variety of languages, uh, did the linguists uh, establish a sort of hierarchy of languages based on some sort of, uh, let, I guess, subjective evaluations about how some of them would be superior or inferior to others. Uh, I don't know in terms of what criteria exactly, but did they do something like that? Oh, yes, they did. Absolutely. It was from the middle of the 18th century, as I mentioned before, with Helda, yeah. he he was one of the first to actually set out the idea that th the hierarchy of languages follows from the organic character of languages and communities. That that languages mm -hmm. are organically bound to their communities, which are organically bound to their environments. Mm -hmm. And that I won't go through that story, uh, but what that means is that. A language is an organism, and like any organism, it has a trajectory. Mm -hmm. It comes into being, it is born, it matures, it goes past maturity, 
and it becomes senescent. It becomes old and it dies. And for Helder and everybody who was influenced by him, it was easy to think that what had been discovered elsewhere in the world, the languages of Asia, Chinese, they discovered that Chinese had existed and had been written long before European languages, uh, South Asian languages, the same Sanskrit, this enormously elaborate, uh, grammatically elaborate language used in, in hundreds and hundreds of literary creations. Well, how could such elaborate literary languages pre-exist ours? Well, mm. that's because they came into being earlier and they matured, but now they are passing into their old age and they are, they are dying and other younger languages are coming into being and they are reaching their apogee. And where would those languages be found? Well, they would be found in, in Europe. The languages which came from they, the, the watch points are Latin and Greek, right? These are the descendants of Latin and Greek, which are now reaching the apogee of their development and therefore the mm -hmm. apogee of development of human species as a whole. How do we know this? Well, if you're held to you say, well, take a look at Arabic. It's, it's a look at its writing system. It's so deficient. It doesn't even write its vowels. Uh, it has 32 words for sword. What language has 32 words for sword? That doesn't make any sense, right? So one, one finds these very specious observations, not always true about linguistic form, which are then sort of blown up and put in this large master narrative. So through most of the colonial era, this argument fit very nicely with the narrative of civilization, right? That the West is leading the West is the exponent of science and reason and civilization, and it is the white man's burden to bring science and civilization to other people. And the languages which are naturally suited for doing this are the languages of, of Europe. So that the hierarchy is very easily assumed to be in place, right? You know, when you, you use the phrase traditional societies, mm -hmm. Well, they didn't talk, they didn't say traditional, they said primitive. Yeah. Right, which they didn't say primal, which would be mm -hmm. first, they said primitive, and all the associations that go with that. And it's very easy, once you have a primitive people, to know that they have a primitive language. Oh, this language doesn't have this kind of grammatical feature, or that kind of grammatical feature, mm -hmm. or it doesn't have words for this, or it doesn't have words for that, right? Uh, so, and, and this is the, the kind of narrative that, that linguists sought to bracket or to cut off in the beginning of the 1920s and the 1930s, right? When the question became, what is the true object of linguistic science? And that meant, as in all sciences, one has to make heuristic assumptions. One has to simplify, one has to strip away. You have to get rid of variables, right? And that's that's when the an attempt to make that break occurred and that includes uh, like for example disentangling languages from the particular communities and the uh, lives of people who spoke them in principle that's right 
by the time by the 1950s 1960s uh it becomes well not a dream but a goal of linguistics to be able to do analysis irrespective of the people with whom one who give you the data that data becomes a magic word, right? So one deals not with speakers, but with data that speakers provide. And the question of who the speaker is, what their background is, their place in a community, differences between speakers within a community, that becomes secondary. Again, the idea is to strip away, right? To, to, uh -huh. to, to eliminate variables. And the ultimate bracketing is done by Chomsky when he says that language, the study of language is really the study of neurocognitive properties of brains. Mm -hmm. So that we, we, at this point, the social becomes secondary. It, it is entirely bracketed. Uh, you know, the idea of linguistics for Chomsky is to discover those universal principles of language, which are rooted in universal properties of neurocognition. So now we're studying language as a property of the species, the entire species, mm -hmm. right? We, we want to find truths about language that apply to all speakers of all languages. And at that point, all these concerns that you and I have been discussing have, mm -hmm. are, are bracketed. I mean, that was what attracted me when I was younger, that, that prospect, right? something that would be mm -hmm. true about all languages everywhere and therefore all speakers everywhere. Uh, uh, okay, but that's more from the perspective of the Chomskyan school of thought, let's say. But uh, do you think uh, with what we know now from linguistics that it is really in any way rigorous from a scientific perspective or that it even makes sense at all to try to study and understand a language and how it developed stripping it from the specific context where it happened. I mean, can languages even function outside of particular socio-cultural contexts or be understood as such? Uh, there may be people who will defend the idea that that project can continue along the lines that, that Chomsky developed. Mm -hmm. I think there are fewer and fewer of them. <laughs> I'm not one of them. And most of the people who I look to in my work do, do, do not believe this. What I might suggest has happened is that the sort of person who is interested in that view of language does not now need to become a linguist. They can become a uh, a uh, computer scientist. Mm. That is to say, I mean, the, the, the magic phrase is natural language processing. I mean, look at the, you, the, you know, the new chatbots, right? Right. They could, one could plausibly say, obviously, we know a great deal about the properties of the English language if we can construct an algorithm, <laughs> which can construct indefinitely many well-formed grammatical sentences of English that are meaningful. Right. That, that mm -hmm. is very close to what Chomsky's goal was to write a grammar of a language was to be able to specify all and only the meaningful strings in that language. Well, 
you can get paid a lot more money to do that now if you're in computers than you can if you're a linguist. So I think there's been a there's kind of a disciplinary split, right? People of that kind or that interest have aren't necessarily in linguistics anymore. That is, they're not in departments of linguistics or publishing in linguistics journals, if, if you see what I mean. Most people who are, especially in at a time when linguistic diversity has become an issue in a way it was not even 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, no, linguistics has moved back into the context in which the linguistic data was originally was originally found. So that increasingly linguistics departments are hot. They're, they're much more interested now in uh, little known, little taught languages. Uh, they are, they're much, there's much less concern to discover universals of language. Mm -hmm. the, the, even the idea of linguistic universals is now looked at sideways by some people, right? Because the idea is that, well, people like to talk about linguistic universals when they only had to look at four or five languages to find one. Mm -hmm. But now you don't have to look very far to find some exception to the rule, <laughs> right? You think you have a universal, but then you find that there's here's a language that doesn't fit it. Well, what do you do? Is it still a universal? It's almost universal. <laughs> what does that mean, <laughs> right? Uh, in other words, that idea of universal neurocognitive processes has become harder and harder to, to defend empirically. And that also has a reason, I think, why linguists have become more and more interested in particulars of languages, especially languages that have previously been little studied, little known. So, uh, something I haven't, uh, haven't asked you about yet uh, has to do with the following. So, uh, when people through colonialism, etc., uh, discovered all of these variety of languages across the globe. Many of them didn't have writing systems. So when studying them uh, and trying to uh, formulate them in a written form, let's say, the, uh, did that pose or do you think that poses any issues uh, within linguistics, I mean, the fact that we are sort of, I think we could use this term, imposing a written form on some of these languages. Oh, absolutely. Uh, every time a colonialist tried, okay, the, the phrase that is sometimes used is linguistic analysis involves the reduction of speech to writing. One reduces speech to writing. Yeah. And that word reduce, I, I, I mean, it, it has a double meaning that's important here, right? One yeah. meaning of reduce is to limit, is to encompass, is to prevent from doing things, right? Mm. To make lesser, yeah? Right. But another meaning of reduce is to get at the essence of. Right to reduce a sauce, for instance, right is to mm -hmm. is to simmer it until it becomes more it becomes more of what it is. Yeah. Right. Now, for a linguist to reduce speech to writing is to do both of those things at the same time. 
And the reason that one makes it lesser is because one must choose one particular way of speaking as the object of description. Uh, as I said, you know, you have to abstract out from a community a mm -hmm. particular way of speaking, despite the fact there is great variation in speaking in that community. Right. That's why when we say American English, we all know what we mean. <laughs> we mean this, right? We don't mean yeah. a dozen of other accents or dialects of the language. So when a linguist encountered a way of speaking which was entirely alien, they had to decide which one of these ways of speaking will I describe, will I reduce to writing? Mm -hmm. And that choice was always, almost always made on a social basis, on the basis of what we're doing the writing for. So when the Spanish friars, who I mentioned before, went to the New World, they chose ways of speaking of the local elites who they found, the nobility of the Mayan societies, mm. because right. those no, that nobility had a very elevated special language, which was for them the language of important rituals. Well, the, the Catholic priests, they knew a ritual when they saw one, they recognized the language of that ritual as being broadly analogous to the language of their own rituals in Latin. They chose that as the thing that they were going to write down. The way most people spoke most of the time was secondary relative to the project that the writing was going to serve. And, and, the, and that poses an additional problem, right? Because if uh, people are deciding to focus on how people who are high status speak, then we are just uh, focusing on a, a tiny sliver of the, on a tiny class uh, of that particular society. Right? Yes, because those priests were doubtless, the, their first targets of conversion were the elites. Yeah. If, if they can get the elites to convert, others may follow. You work top down, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and again, from their hop again, as I said before, to 19th century, let's say to uh, Central or Eastern Africa, yeah, mm -hmm. where missionaries, mostly Protestant, had been working in what became Rhodesia, yeah. and each group of missionaries had its own territory. The colonial government said. The Methodists, you work over the American Methodists, you work over here, and the British Episcopalians, you work over there. Yeah. Each of them developed their own way of writing the language that they heard being spoken in their areas. Mm. But then, when the colonial powers needed to consolidate because they were consolidating the bureaucracy of the state, right? They looked at these different ways of writing all these different languages, and they said, "No, we need, we need." we need something more uniform. They pulled in a professional linguist who basically did the job of taking these different writing systems, which did in fact match different ways of speaking. And he created a single uniform writing system, which was then used in the schools, which was served to produce that cadre of, of native, native elites who worked in the bureaucracy. So once again, the selection of a way of writing keyed to not just a way of speaking that we want to be able to represent, uh -huh. but to the social project that the, the writing is going to serve.
So that, I mean, this is um, from the very beginning to the late periods of colonialism, similar patterns arise. So uh, this is very interesting because uh, the, isn't this at least to some extent similar to what happened even in uh, the most developed society, uh, developed countries when uh, through the development of formal schooling particularly uh, I, I, I mean it seems that people who created uh, grammars and dictionaries uh, and the kind of standardized version of each language that we learn across the different countries they, uh, th that's a very artificial version of the language, right? Because uh, uh, the, the, that version of each language that we find in official manuals, documents, whatever, uh, is, is very different from the common usage of, its, of each language, correct? To a great extent, yes. No, you, I think you're exactly right that the kind of linguistic projects that were being carried out in colonial areas by European powers had parallels in their own territories. Mm -hmm. So for instance, I mean, the, the best example here might be France, right? Mm -hmm. At the same time that the French were colonizing parts of Northern Africa, they had already established schools to make sure that little children going up in the south of France were learning the way of speaking associated with Ile de France, <laughs> way up in the north, yeah? Yes. I mean, the the famous car uh, figure in this is Abbe de Gregoire, who he dreamed of a country in which at the same time, each morning, children in schools all over France would be opening their, page, their books to the same page and learning the same language. So that what now counts as French was imposed, I may use that word, or superposed mm -hmm. through institutions of education and through literacy on the rest of the country. Right. Uh, the same, I mean, some of those projects haven't even yet entirely succeeded. If you take a look at uh, Catalonia, <laughs> <laughs> Catalonia has uh, yeah. not exceeded, not exactly fully accepted Castilian as its language. Yeah. Right. So that, no, I, I'm just agreeing with you that uh, the idea of a standard language, let me put it this way, the forms of a standard language are never fully congruent with the ways that speakers of that language actually speak. But it is the role of a language ideology for them to misrecognize those differences. Mm -hmm. it, is the, it is the role of an ideology of a language for people to think that I may not speak that way, but that is my language. So that, no, so that for instance, somebody who speaks a non-standard dialect of any national language, American English, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, somebody from Glasgow can hear the queen and hear their language to the right. extent that they have internalized that attitude, that belief, that perspective, they have internalized a sense of identity as a subject of the queen. <laughs> yeah. So mm -hmm. that I, we're back to language ideologies here, right? This is 
the, the project of language standardization is not just about teaching knowledge of forms of proper language. It is about inculcating in people an awareness of their relative superiority and value. Mm -hmm. That is that is the language ideology, which is core for monolingual modern nation states. Mm -hmm. Yes, and curiously enough, uh, and referring again to the um, uh, language ideologies you were talking about, uh, I guess that uh, after the the rise of these national languages and uh, that have been taught through the formal schooling system, um, perhaps some of the ideas uh, that people have about uh, non-standardized ways of uh, speaking and, and writing as well, but probably mainly speaking, perhaps have uh, to some extent exacerbated because, I mean, I was just thinking, for example, about the work done by people, uh, linguists like William LaBeouf, who, who has done work on uh, uh, the English spoken by African-Americans or people in African-American communities. And people have this sort of idea that what is not standard or close to standard is not as sophisticated, is not as grammatically rigorous or complex, but I mean, the work is done and the work that other people have done with other communities really shows that even though it might not be standard uh, or standard according to the standards or of whatever has been uh, determined at the national level, uh, these languages or the way people use these languages is still very much as complex as what is considered standard, right? Yeah. No, th this is a good example of the value of the linguistic claim that there is no metric for judging languages to be relatively better or worse. Mm -hmm. This is what Lebov did. He, he, he was empirical. He so that, for instance, uh, African-American English is widely regarded as, as illogical as if it it doesn't use tense and aspect, grammatical aspect, the way mm -hmm. that standard English does. Right. Well, in fact, it it is it does it does it with different forms, and it is in fact more complex than the aspect system of of standard English. It's uh, regarded as lazy in some ways because in African American English, consonant clusters tend to be reduced. That is to say, combinations like sk or uh, consonants appearing after vowels at the end of words. I mean, I could go on, but but as you say, empirically, there is no empirical reason for saying that this is in some way lazy or illogical, right? The, the way of speaking becomes an excuse. <laughs> it becomes a target. It becomes a surrogate for an attitude to the speaker. But that is because we make this easy assumption that there's this intrinsic relationship between manner of speech and manner of being, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that, that what comes out of our mouth is, is a, a sure clue to the nature of what's up here, right? And what's in here. Uh, so yeah, Lebov, he has testified in court 
about this and and court cases have been decided about the status of African-American English in which his testimony has made a great deal of uh, difference. But, you know, the dominant sort of out there in the world opinion has has been quite different and they don't listen to linguists much. <laughs> <laughs> they, don't, they don't have much use for, you know, the facts. They don't need those. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but what, what do you think uh, when it comes to marginalized languages? What do you think are some of the biggest threats that the languages and the respective speech communities are exposed to? Um, you could look at this as having, there are two kinds of danger, depending on okay. your perspective. Okay. If you're a, uh, if you're a, a regular linguist, let me just use that phrase, you can say that the danger of the loss of diversity is that we will no longer have all the data we need to fully understand the nature of human language. Uh, so one could analogize that position to that of somebody who studies insects. And mm -hmm. the loss of species of insects prevents us from fully understanding insects in general, right? Right. Uh, so that a language is like a species, as it were. And the endangerment of species is an endangerment of what we need to understand them. Uh, so that those are people who say, look, there are roughly 6,000 languages in the world now. There will be about 2,000 in two generations. This is, we're going to lose too much knowledge of what constitutes language diversity and therefore mm -hmm. language as a human property. That's one kind of danger. The other one, which I take it you are referring to, is what happens to their speakers. Yeah, correct. Uh, that is, what are the correlates or the consequences of a loss of a, of a language? Uh -huh. uh, and there are a couple of different ways of, of answering that. Some people will say, not many, and they won't say it very loudly, but they will. What's wrong with that? People, you know, if they, if, if a group of people decided to walk away, if a language is like a project that people carry out together and people start walking away from the project, it's because they find a better project. They find one they like better. So that, you know, if parents who are speakers of Mayan languages in Mesoamerica only want to speak Spanish with their children at home because their kids can get on better in Spanish. Yeah. Who are we to stop them? Right? The kids can get they can go higher in school, they can get a better job, they can right? Who are we to have tell better them? Better opportunities in their That's society, right. basically. Right. So this is the point of view that says language is merely an instrument of social action. Mm -hmm. And some languages are more useful than others, right? Uh, I sometimes analogize this to uh, money. In, in class, I will say this to students. I will drop you anywhere in the world and I will give you your choice of currency and your choice of language. What do you want? And not just because they're Americans, because some of them aren't Americans, but the general answer is, give me American dollars in English. And mm. I say, well, that is no coincidence, is it? <laughs> uh, 
yeah. in other words, you can map the value of English with the economic situation in the world. And, and mm -hmm. uh, so that's one way of looking at it. It's not a danger at all. It's a necessary consequence of social change and globalization. Okay. I don't take that position. I don't mm -hmm. like that position, right? Another position is that we must protect the diversity of languages at all costs. Therefore, to save the languages, we must save the communities that they are spoken in. Therefore, the economies of those communities must be preserved as well, right? If people are finding themselves obliged to travel very far from their home places in order to find work, uh, or if they find that by the time they want to marry, they are in communities very different from their own. We have to find ways to remediate that because otherwise their children will grow up speaking another language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that is a position which also is, is it's impractical mm -hmm. and it's kind of a new form of, you know, don't, don't move too far away from home. You know, uh, if they want to start you speaking Spanish in high school, maybe you should think about not going to high school, right? That's the sort mm -hmm. of, that's the sort of right. argument you find yourself making. Mm -hmm. So in the, between those two, the, the skill and charybdis of these two arguments, one needs to find a middle path. And that middle path will vary from place to place, language to language, community to, to community. Uh, which is a typical academic way of saying it depends. <laughs> <laughs> I, but, I can go on in that direction if you want. Uh, uh, no, yes, of course, I, I would like to know more about what that middle path could look like then. Sure. Um, well, there are different strategies for mm -hmm. language. Sometimes it's called language revitalization. Uh, one way is to recognize that educational institutions are here to stay and that they will continue to be have as their linguistic vehicle some out, outsider language. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that a local language cannot find a place in the schools. Recognizing always the dangers we talked about before that come with reducing a language to writing. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the, yeah. if one is sensitive to those differences and those dangers, then perhaps it is possible for them languages to become first objects of instruction and then mediums of instruction. Mm -hmm. uh, so what an example, Hawaiian. Uh, Hawaiian was a massively endangered language up until the 1970s. Then there was an indigenous movement, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. And long story short, Hawaiian is now you can go to, I believe, through I believe through eighth grade is study in Hawaiian. OK, so this is you know, this is work between activists on one hand, native speakers of the language on the other and and the government of the island. This was leveraged in part by the recency of the colonial project there. Right. That is, I mean, Hawaii was not fully colonialized till the late 19th century. So the memory of that and the displacement of the natives off the land and the overthrow of Queen Kamehameha, mm -hmm. this is all still fairly recent <clears throat> and it can be leveraged as part of collective memory. So right. that's one possibility. Uh, another I like is the pirating of modern media for kids. Uh, it, it, 
it may be a gimmick, but I hope I hope it isn't. So that, for instance, uh, uh, YouTube channels and TikToks in a local language, in an indigenous language. Mm -hmm. uh, there are groups, mostly of high school kids in Ireland, who do Gaelic covers of pop songs. You can find them on YouTube. You can, you know, you can hear. Uh, uh, you you know who Macklemore is, the rapper. Uh, well, no, not really. Okay, well he was he was very popular ten or fifteen years, maybe ten years ago, and some of his ter material has been taken over and gaelicized, and mm. you can find that on on YouTube as well. So, okay. here is a way that the local language becomes cool. <laughs> that as I say, the young people with each other are mobilizing the language as a local resource to assert their identity, their uniqueness, right? We're mm -hmm. not like, as one does, one, we're not like everybody else, we're special, we're cool. Yeah. And we're cool on one hand because we can do these songs and we're cool on the other hand because we're doing them in our own language. This doesn't mean that they're going to be speaking those languages with their kids in 20 years, but it does mean that the language has a presence in the in their minds and in the community. So these are some of the possibilities of things that, that can be done. Uh, there, there is no, there is no purity to it. The dream of a language being pure is the kiss of death. <laughs> that is, by the way, the, the idea of language purity. That's another language ideology, which right. one you need to look out for it because it pops up in many many different guises. Mm -hmm. So um, just for, for this last part of the interview, I would like to ask you a specific question about some of the languages you studied, like Japanese, Indonesian, and so on. So uh, do some of the issues we've been talking about today uh, also manifest uh, in those languages you studied, uh, Indonesian, Japanese, and so on. I mean, uh, are there uh, some of the elements uh, having to do with uh, colonialism and writing systems and some of the other topics we explored uh, also appear there? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Okay. How about I, I I'm watching. I'll, I'll try and give me five minutes, maybe. Mm -hmm. I, I, no, because it, much of what I'm saying is deeply influenced by what I've been doing in my own my own research. Right. Uh, so, OK, going back to what we were talking about with language hierarchies. Here's an example mm -hmm. of Javanese. Uh, when the Dutch well, first the English and then the Dutch arrived there, they discovered written documents which were in what came to be called Old Javanese. Okay, this is, and it turns out this dates back to 900 AD. It's Sanskritic. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the people who will call the first linguist uh, looked at this language and he said, this will help us know whether a language and its people can be improved or not, because the people who spoke Javanese obviously were primitive. They were illiterate until Sanskrit came along. Literacy in Sanskrit and, and religion came along. 
So now we can look at these old Javanese documents and see whether, in fact, Javanese could be promoted or elevated. His answer was no, it couldn't, because the grammar stayed the same. There were a lot of Sanskrit words, but the grammar stayed the same. So here was the European saying, oh, well, you see, once you speak a language, it's the language. Uh, 50 years later, the Dutch are colonializing and they're having problems with Islam. They're having problems with all these people who are monotheists like they are. Uh, and the philologists who are studying Javanese now tell a story about how back in 1200, 1300 in the common era, there was there were Hindu Buddhist kingdoms, mm -hmm. uh, which are the true heritage of the Javanese. And since then, with the coming of Islam, that language and its culture has been has been reduced. It has fallen apart. It has become very degenerate. But now we are here and we are going to use our methods to get back to the original language. And then we can give it to the Javanese in its original pure form, which is to say before Islam came along. <laughs> yeah. Right. So in other words, they're, they're, they're substituting their vision of a past for the colonial present. Mm -hmm. So there's an example of a hierarchy and interest working in, okay, and I'm going too slow. Uh, Indonesia now is a language of a nation of uh, 270 million people, 95% of them speak it. None of them are native speakers of that language. I hope that sounds peculiar <laughs> because we associate being a member of a nation with being a native speaker of a national language. Yeah. Right. So the question that has interested me most over the last few years is how this works. Hmm. What I want to avoid is an answer which says, well, that's because Indonesia is a funny country with a funny language. <laughs> what I want to do is come up with an answer which says what's going on in Indonesia is simply a special case of what's going on everywhere with native languages. Mm -hmm. And that's what I was talking about with language ideologies before, which is to say that part of being a speaker of a national language is misrecognizing or ignoring differences between what counts as the national language and what you actually do when you speak. <laughs> and Indonesia offers a special case of that. So I, I can keep going, but I think maybe is that enough? You, uh, I can give you more details about either of those. Uh, okay, so give us a little bit more detail uh, about particularly this last bit that you mentioned about you trying to understand why it's not necessarily the case. I mean, we tend to think that people that live in a particular country would be natives of a particular national language, right? But that's yep. not necessarily the case. So t tell us a, just a little bit more about that. Sure. Well, what I want to say is that the very idea of being a native speaker incorporates a language ideology. And it go, the argument goes like this. On one hand, acquiring a language is a natural process. It is distinctively human species. Any genetically normal human will acquire language competences from those adult persons that they are exposed to. Mm -hmm. That's that's just an ontogenetic fact. That's a natural fact. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And when they achieve, when they begin to uh, approach puberty, as they begin to mature, neuroplasticity goes down and they will never learn another language the same way. Right. Which is why when we speak a language other than our native language, we have an accent. 
right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how fluent we are, something is going to get in the way. Yeah. And that gives us the feeling that we are fated to our language. Once it's in us, we can't get rid of it, even <laughs> if we wanted to, yeah? yeah? And it gives us the feeling that we are native speakers of a language that was handed down to us from our ancestors and which we will hand on to those who follow from us. Mm -hmm. And that makes for this sense of continuity, yeah, that yeah. my biography as a speaker is inscribed in the history of the people who speak that language. I'm borrowing an argument here from Benedict Anderson's Imagine Communities. And that's all true, right? Right. But what is also true is that the ways we speak, we learn to associate with the idea of a standard language. Mm -hmm. So that even if I do not the, the ways that I speak do not map onto the standard language as we were talking about before, I still think of it as my language. And in that sense, to be a native speaker of a language isn't just a natural attribute, it's a learned attribute. It is an attribute which is assigned to me by other persons. So I may be a native speaker of English, but my English is illogical or lazy or sloppy or deficient, but I still think of it as my language. That is always the case, I would say. The difference in the case of Indonesia is that the national language makes no claims of existential connection to them. Everybody speaks mm -hmm. it with an accent. You can't, you know, if, if you say, you say at the very beginning, I speak American English. I'm a native speaker of American English. That's what's coming out of my mouth. What accent do I have? Well, if I'm in the southern part of the United States, I will have an accent. I'll have a northern accent, right? Right. In Indonesia, everybody has an accent all the time, <laughs> right? Nobody, no, nobody counts as an, there's no social group. Mm -hmm. There's no superior social group of the kind we were spoken about before who count, oh, they speak the best Indonesian because it's native. Nobody speaks that. Everybody has an accent. But that doesn't mean any, and therefore we are all equally Indonesian. <laughs> uh, and I just very quickly would say that if you look now to Europe, many places in Europe are destandardizing their languages. There is sociolinguistic research now in much of Western Europe showing that old language standards are breaking down. In the Netherlands, in Belgium, in France, in the Nordic countries, and perhaps also in the Romance language-speaking countries. Take a look at Catalonia, for instance, right? Where mm -hmm. are you a native speaker of Castilian or of Catalan? Well, it could be hard to tell. How can you be a native speaker of both? Doesn't that sound weird? Who can be natively bilingual? Anybody can, <laughs> but it sounds funny, doesn't it? It doesn't yeah. sound, well, That that is becoming more and more the case so that what I would like to argue tongue in cheek is that Indonesia is not a special case of nationalism that is trying to catch up with real nationalism. Mm -hmm. In fact, it may be a model of what's happening now elsewhere in the world, largely because of media, but that's, you have to go, you have to go from there and talk about media, but I, I, <laughs> I, I continue to hesitate to go on. <laughs> no, 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 and I mean, perhaps this is also a good point to end on today. Maybe somewhere in the future we can come back and continue this conversation and talk about other aspects also of your work. So, 
Dr. Arrington, uh, just before we go, would you like to tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Any places you would like to mention? Um, some of my stuff is on academia.edu. Mm -hmm. there's, there's stuff there. Uh, right. I believe the longest thing that is there is a version of my book, Colonial Linguistics, which is what we were discussing before. Mm -hmm. uh, if I may plug it, uh, I was just discussing material from a book that came out last uh, fall called uh, Other Indonesians, Nationalism in an Unnative Language, which, to be honest, I suspect will not be that interesting. It's very empirical. <laughs> but if uh, people are interested, they can find that through Oxford University Press. And if they wait a couple of years, it will probably be on Academia EDU, but I can't do that yet. <laughs> Those are the things that I, I think of, yeah. Great, so I will be leaving some links to that in the description box of the interview. And thank you so much again for taking the time thank to you. come on the show. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. I, I've, I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks again. Hi guys, thank you for watching the interview until the end. Please do not forget to share the video, subscribe to the channel and also leave a like. And if you like what I'm doing, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in the description box of the interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights Learning and Development Done Differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Berger Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernardo Seixas, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Visser, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Eric Alenia, John Connors, Philip Force Connolly, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Cavana, Mikkel Stormir, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Tiago Nunes, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrandt, João Linhares, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Weira, Tom Hamel, Sardas France, David Sloan Wilson, Yassila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londonio Correa, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Bach, Guy Madison, Gary G. Elman, Simon Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Nick Golden, Paul Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Morten Eichland, Dr. Bird, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Mau Maria, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Georgius Theophanus, Chris Williamson, Peter Wolosin, David Williams, Ruth Towell, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Murray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Pedro Bonilla, Ziegler, Bangalore Atheists, Larry D. Lee Jr., Old Herringbone, Sterry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Gracies, Tom Roth, DRPMD, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zul, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Richard Bowen, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, and Manuel Oliveira. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Venegdam, Bernard Hugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Vega Giddy, Thomas Turnbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, John Carlo Montenegro, Robert Lewis and Al Nick Ortiz, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codrian and Bogdan Canivets. Thank you for all.